Southern Oregon. This is Umpqua Community College. And past that fountain was the library. That's where I spent a lot of time writing a paper for a teacher. And then I didn't know if I could write well enough to get that teacher to give me a good grade. So I found a principal that I used to have in grade school, and I asked him to proofread my paper. Some of you were here last week. You guys remember what his specialty was? just happened to be English. So he proofread my paper. I submitted to the teacher. She couldn't mark off a whole lot about that, but she called me in her office. And she said, I don't agree with you. She was mad. She was angry. She said, I go to a Catholic church, and here's my interpretation of Daniel chapter 2. She handed me a stack of papers. Must have been 15, 20 pages of her own. And I said, well, I don't know about that. And she said, well, can you prove to me that, that the, the legs, she thought the head was Babylon, the arms and chest of silver was, was the Medes, the legs were Persia, and then uh, down here in the, in the part of the legs was also Greece. And she said, you're wrong. You, you look at all these scholars. And I said, are they all Catholic? And she said, because she said she was a Catholic. I said, okay, well, that's, that's your opinion, but have I done the research that you asked me to do? And she said, yes, you've done the research. And I said, so can I defend this in front of the class? And she said, I'll think about it. Because see, every person who had a research paper was able to give a presentation in front of the class. And that was actually my goal, was to give a Bible study to the class. So she thought about it. She gave me, what do you think my grade was on my paper? She wouldn't give me an A. She gave me a B plus. And I was going to contest it. But uh, she said, we'll make some final revisions and maybe I'll bring it up to it anyway. I said, well, am I able to present? So we had several meetings with this teacher. And she finally said, I will let you give a presentation. So I got to class. I was really nervous. I hadn't even given a sermon or anything. I, I was a youth leader at my local church. I led some of the little kids' classes. And here I am standing in front of 25 college students. And I was the second one to present. And I noticed when we did it the first, they asked all kinds of questions. And so I stood up and I said, let me read to you from Daniel chapter 2. And I read from Daniel chapter 2. And then I began to try to explain it. And the teacher cut me off. She said, all the reputable scholars say something different than what this student is about to tell you. And she just began to lambast me with all kinds of arguments against my paper and all of this. And I could see the students out there thinking, well, what if I'm next? You know? and, and I said, excuse me, can I say something? Because she went on for about five minutes doing this. And I had my hand up. I remember I was, I was, uh, I always learned to keep your hand up until they call you. So I had my hand up in the middle of the college class, when I'm supposed to be presenting, and I kept it up until she called on me. She said, yes? And I said, can I say something? She said, yes. And I said, anybody here who would like to study this out and hear my presentation, I'll be at the library from this time to that time, and you can come over and hear my presentation. Since, obviously, I'm not allowed to present it here in class. And I sat down, and she was angry. And I thought, there goes my A-. minus. She didn't give me any minus, though I think I should have gotten any on the paper. But I learned something from that. 
First of all, I was trying to be polite. I was studying something that I felt passionately about. But sometimes when you're on a college campus like that that's not Christian, you have to do a little more tactfully. I, I tried to do it as tactfully as I could. But I learned a couple lessons from that. Number one, stand for what you believe. Number two, be respectful. Number three, the Lord will provide help for you, which he provided for me in that English teacher. But also at a certain point, you just have to be quiet and let the words speak for themselves. Because none of those students even came to my afternoon presentation then. But a few months later, we held a Bible study in one of the classrooms because we formed a Christian group. And we had a whole host of people that showed up for that Bible study. And so I learned there's a time to speak, sometimes there's a time to just be still as well, but to stand for your faith no matter what. Sometimes your faith will stand when you're quiet and humble and let the people judge for themselves. So I'm not sure what you're going to face in life. Maybe you'll face a teacher like that. Maybe you won't. But if you do, I want to encourage you to believe in what you have been taught and to stand for it no matter what. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, thank you for each one here and their families. Lord, you know what teachers we face in this country and abroad as well. You know the plans you have for each child here and those who are going to be here today. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will be upon them, that you will bless them, you'll give them courage, sometimes tact as well, and help them to know when to be quiet. I didn't exactly know when to be quiet, but you told, kind of led me to be quiet in that situation. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful for the Bible study that resulted after that. But Lord, we trust you. We love you. Bless each child here and each adult. In Jesus' name. Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you wash us with the cleansing of your word, the words of Jesus. Guide us now as we look at some of these. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's one thing to stand for truth in a situation where it's clear who the antagonist is, right? You've been in those situations where you're thinking, okay, you know, I know what to expect from this person. But there's some situations where you're standing for something and you're wondering, you know, am I really doing the right thing here? I've come across um, the word present truth recently, um, not in a sense that I'd never studied it out before, not in a sense that I'd never um, figured out what present truth is. In fact, we had a whole class, a couple of periods, on present truth with the old German professor Sigrowski. And he, did, he actually took the concept of present truth and he showed how in every age God has had a prophetic movement that proclaimed present truth. And he led it all the way down to 1844, showed us it there, showed us it later as well, how God was still leading the church. And he said we need to stand for present truth. We need to stand for the truths that we've been given. And I agree with that. And he especially focused on the S's, the Sabbath, the sanctuary, the state of the dead, and the second coming, the four S's. And I still remember him doing that. And yet in a different class, the, the, the professor was trying to tear it down and I stood up against that Christian professor just like I stood up against the non-Christian professor on that campus. And yet I was called into the academic dean's office to explain myself. And I said to this person, you know, I would expect this from a secular college campus. I've attended a secular college campus. I, was, I grew up in public school. I didn't become a Christian until I was 17, going on 18. So I expect this there, but I don't expect it here. I understand hearing different viewpoints and all of that, but this person is totally tearing down the Word of God. He basically told me that I could, he couldn't do anything about it. And so I said, all right, 
your theology students would do something about it. And we armed ourselves with Greek and Hebrew. I was a Greek tutor and grader at the time. And we went to class every time for a battle. And, and what was funny was that class was like that. You know, Moses was not the author of Benitude and all, this, all these higher critical things. And then in the next class, the teacher would come along and he would tell us, Moses is the author. He would give us evidence. And so it was like the Lord was every day we would have the one class, then go to the next class. And by the time we came to the other class, we had the answers we needed. The Lord provided it through that next teacher and through our Bible study. And so we would say, well, wait a minute, we have a question with yesterday's lecture. And almost every single time that happened. Got to the point where the academic dean actually sat into the class and said, you know, there's a difference of opinion here. And he, he would not support us. But we continue to have that interesting providence of God where the truth came out in one class and we were then able to share it in the next class. And the teacher finally quit teaching a higher critical method. He actually began to say, well, here's what some people teach. And, and he began to actually show us from our Adventist sources, you know, this is where we're at. Surprising change in that person. But it took a stand for truth. And, I, and the problem I have is that you know, some of those situations seem pretty cut and dry. Seem pretty clear that someone has this type of method or, or they're acting like the world, whatever, you can deal with it. But what happens when you start dealing with people who are experts at lying? You know, you can't discern. It's almost like, first of all, we don't bring it to the front. So if you want me to bring certain theories and stuff to the front here, you won't ever hear it here. I may allude to a story or something where I've dealt with it. I may lace in a lesson that will help you deal with some of that. But I will not bring those things to the front. Because I've been told how, in our Adventist history, how Adventist ministers typically need to preach. Even to those who understand truths that we have as a church. So when I go to Revelation chapter 1, and I go through the whole book of Revelation, and we had a series a couple of years ago, we did that. I look for how this applies to us today, how the present truth and how it relates to Christ today. And I'll come to a definition of the present truth later on. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, even the things which must shortly come to pass. Last week we learned that was pointing back to Daniel, and so this revealing of Jesus is both in Daniel and Revelation. Both books point to him. We even saw some interesting quotations that show how the flesh and the blood of Jesus is found in the books of Daniel and Revelation. We're to eat those words and, and, and make those part of our lives as they point us to Jesus. So that was last week. And he sent and signified it, or symbolized it, by his angel to his servant John. So this is a revealing of Jesus, which God gave to Jesus. He had this whole process. And I'm going to put an idea up on the screen here in a minute, a, a graphic but notice, John is a servant, a doulos. This is a humble station in the Jewish economy. This is somebody who's, when you arrive to a meal, they're washing your feet, they're, they're taking out, you know, maybe a coat or something from you. These are individuals who are serving, usually not seen very much, just felt. You know, like if, you're, if you're at the table and they're washing your feet, they come in and out. In other societies later on in life, you know, like the English society, the servants were hardly supposed to not be seen. So you have somebody who, who is using a word, at least in ancient times, and even in modern, more modern situations, modern Europe anyway, uh, ancient Europe, 
that it was a situation where you take the backseat. You're basically behind the scenes. Why is John behind? He's pointing to somebody. He's pointing to Jesus. It's quite a change, isn't it? From somebody who it's like, okay, Lord, why don't you call fire down from heaven? Or his mama comes over and says, I want James and John. You know? So you have that son of thunder now being called a servant. The nickname is no longer the son of thunder. It's the servant John. That means a change is taking place. And he is in the spirit on the Lord's day. Here he is on the Sabbath looking at Jesus, is what appears to him. And so he had to be a servant that was in the spirit to receive and center this truth that we're going to read on Christ. If you look at a graphic, it's, maybe you can make that out hopefully. It starts with the revealing of Jesus, but notice Jesus isn't alone. God gave this to Jesus. Then it comes, if you want to use a downward one, I, I would feel more comfortable with the ripple effect. I know we think of a hierarchy. But as you look at Jesus and God, you're really not dealing with, with a sense of, I'm better, I'm higher up than you. They're, they're equal, or co-equals, or co-regions. But a revealing of Jesus then goes to an angel, and we do know that we as created beings are lesser, so that's okay. So we go from God to Jesus giving a message. God gives it to Jesus. Jesus gives it to an angel. The angel then gives it to John, who gives it to the churches, and John is in the spirit, and John says, basically, the, the spirit comes and brings it to the church, they have to have ears to hear. Go on later down in Revelation, it talks about the spirit and the bride say, come. They have to have the same spirit that John had to really receive the words that John is going to have read to them. That's a challenge, isn't it? In our world today, we have people lording it over each other. And frankly, I will be blunt. It almost appears like the last statement of the, some of the last statements about those who are outside the city. One of those groups, if you look at the higher, if you want to look at kind of law in stress, when it says those who are outside the city are dogs and immoral and all this, it keeps going. And, and the last one, is almost the same one as the seven deadly sins in Proverbs. The one who loves lies and practices them. Now, if that's not our culture today, where you look at media and all kinds of things, and individuals, and they, you can't tell whether they're telling a lie, and they'll basically ask for forgiveness afterwards, I don't know what else is. Now, what would happen if that method came into the church? Because usually, sometimes, the church has to face a bombardment of the same method that's seen outside. I believe 1 John chapter 4, our scripture reading, is telling us that if we would be like John, we have to have the focus of John, we have to be in the spirit like John, and the message we have has to focus in the same direction as John. Otherwise, what are we like? The world. An antichrist, in the simplest Greek definition, in place of Christ, all kinds of messages then take the place of Jesus. They could even be called present truth. This professor thought he was telling us truth that we never knew before. And so I want to be able to receive this message here in the church. But I first have to come prayerfully. That's what I've been doing all week. I've been sick and I'm typing emails and answering phone calls and all that. But I said, Lord, whatever this message is, I hope they can see you and I hope that 
I can have that same, and it's not of myself. I know I'm not humble by myself. I mean, if you saw Murray years ago, you would know that he's not the same guy as you see him today. And there are moments when that old man, like I said before, will sometimes try to put his hand on the grave. So I need the same spirit to guide me. And I'm not the only one. This is from the Bible Commentary, 7th volume, page 953. The whole Bible is a revelation. This is, the Bible Commentary has some background information. It also has some Ellen White quotes. This is one of them. The whole Bible is a revelation. For all revelation to men, including what we're talking about, this, this progression down to John, comes through Christ. Who is the medium? It's Christ. Who is the messenger of the covenant that the Old Testament talked about? Christ. Who's the, the suffering servant? Christ. You find all the way through the Old Testament, the one that becomes known as Jesus Christ, or the Word, or Yahweh, you find He is always the communicator. It's no coincidence that He's the one that forms man of the dust of the ground and breathes into His nostrils the rest of the breath of life. You have this personal being of the Godhead that does that. She says it's Christ. And all centers in Him. How much? All. God has spoken unto us by His Son, who is we are by creation and by redemption. He formed us. He reforms us. We've been warped by this world. We've been shaped and molded by circumstances. We have generational sins that the devil claims territory in each one of our lives. Some of us, it could be anger. Some of us, it could be lust. Some of us, it could be money. Some of us, it could be going down the line. All those seven deadly sins and, and the things that keep people out of the city of God at the end. The devil wants to claim that territory in each one of our lives. And the only answer is a perfect record. Look in the mirror sometime and say, do I have a perfect record? By myself, I know I have a perfect record. This is exactly what he's talking about. It centers in him. As far as heaven's concerned, if you're in him, if it centers in him and you're in him, the devil can point the finger, and, the, and we get down to the New Testament where there's a fight over the body of Moses, and the Lord says, the boy, the boy says, the Lord rebuke you. There's a reason why that could take place. Moses had an anger problem, didn't he? Now we know he was told to speak, and he struck the rock. We know there's times when it's felt like the Lord wants to get rid of the people, and he intervenes, and so there's some softness there. But there's other times where he would, he would be okay with them being wiped out. So... This individual is seen as worthy that God would fight for him and give him life after death. And it's the Lord who rebukes him. Not, hey, Moses' pedigree and his training in Egypt and all these different things and the skills that he thought he uh, had and had to unlearn. Not, not his whole life story. It's the Lord who rebukes you. And so everything centers in him. God has spoken to us by his Son, whose we are by creation and redemption. Christ came to John, exiled on the Isle of Patmos, to, hit, to give him the truth for these last days. That is present truth. If you use that label for something else, other than clear teachings of the Word of God, side issues, I'm told I am not supposed to bring side issues to this pulpit. I'm not to make this pulpit a forum. I'm not to grab an email off of somewhere and bring it here and read it to you. Something that was given to you in private and basically try to expose the sin. You know, that method's going on right now in the church. And I tell you right now, that is the potential for bearing false witness. 
and the stones may fall at your feet instead of theirs. I will never use them. Because how do you know that person, pastor or leader, whoever wrote that, didn't do it out of love for somebody, and maybe they, maybe they had a long night and that email was really coming out convoluted. I mean, or there's no tone in the email and the tone got right into the email. We can't do that. We can't use the same methods that the world uses to leak information. We stand against things and falsehoods, but they become side issues that take us away from this. To show him that which must surely come to pass, Jesus Christ is the great trustee of divine revelation. Not me, not you, not anybody else. There's only one source. It is through him that we have a knowledge of what we are to look for in the closing scenes of this earth's history. 1 John chapter 4 tells you. And these are questions that I ask of somebody who I wonder if maybe is being influenced by the devil. I say, well, do you believe Jesus Christ came in the flesh? That he was literally a human being? That he lived that perfect life for us? They tell you no to that. Someone can tell you no with words. Or they can tell you no with the incongruency of their lives. If he truly lived that perfect life for me, then why am I not focusing on it? Why am I spending my time focusing on all these other things that are going on? Almost nullifies what he did for us. Not because it's not still there. But because the devil has taken our focus off of the surety that we have. And now all of a sudden we look at each other and we look in the mirror. We don't like what we see. We become uglier and uglier because of that. And so I look up to Jesus and it says, Through him we have the knowledge of what we are to look for in the closing scenes. Another question you can ask is, not only did he, is Jesus Christ from the flesh, but is he risen? If he's alive and well today, and he still rules over kings of this earth, he still rules over, he can, if people let him be the prince of peace of their lives, then why don't we let him rule? Why don't we share the good news about this guy and see that conversion change lives? I still remember somebody told me one time, you know, we'll see you soon. And I was just getting to the point where I was never going to come back to life of crime again. And I remember the person telling me, you'll be back. Now what kind of message is that? I mean, here, you've got the, 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 basically the head of the leadership club who has, for a long period of time, showed consistent behavior and consistent love for the, the people around him. And you're going to tell him to trip him up as he leaves. We'll see you soon. No, that's, that's ridiculous. Uh, Jesus Christ is risen. And I remember, after I got out, uh, I have an uncle, and he said, the biggest contributing factor for people never going back People never returning to a life of crime or a life of addiction or a life of the, he lists off a bunch of things, is a conversion to Jesus Christ. This is coming from somebody who I didn't even know was a Christian. So if Jesus Christ is risen, then we can prayerfully lift up people maybe we disagree with, maybe lift up situations that we think are just totally right, stand up at times when you need to. We stood up last fall, and we're going to continue to stand up. There, we're not going to let things rest as far as standing up for things, but you have to allow God to work in that situation sometimes. And sometimes it's as simple as this. Lord, I can't do anything about that. I try. I've done what I could do to influence the situation. So now, Lord, shut the lion's mouth. It's starting to be <laughs> He will act and he will do something in that situation. The third thing you could ask, is he Lord? Not only is he risen, but is he able to rule? 
And if somebody says no to any one of those questions, either through words or actions, uh, you basically have to challenge them and yourself. You know, I'm going to continue believing that he is risen. He can work this out. But he also is coming back to settle this thing. And he'll settle in a way that I, I can never settle it. And so the body and the bride looks to this Jesus. God gave this revelation to Christ. Christ communicated it to John. And she goes on. The instruction to be communicated to John was so important that Christ came from heaven to give it to his servant personally. Telling him to send it to the churches. Christ came personally to John. I, I pray that. Not only my own personal devotions, and, and Ellen White talks about this idea of when we're drawn close to Christ, His presence of joy and all that can come into our midst, into our study. But I, I long for the day when I'll see Him like this personally. John had that. This instruction is to be the object of our careful and prayerful study. For we are living in a time when men who are not under the teaching of the Holy Spirit will bring in false theories, plural. These men have been standing in high places. That means they, they're, they're in the church. They, have leadership positions even. Not just talking about uh, administrators either. We're talking about it all the way down to be a local church. And they have ambitious projects to carry out. They seek to exalt themselves to revolutionize. So re revolution is typically the, the buzzword. Or we need to change this or this needs to take place. Revolutionize the whole showing of things. God has given us special instruction to guard us against such ones. He bade John write in a book that which should take place in the closing scenes of this earth's history. And that is what we're looking at here today. This is how we answer it. This is how we answer everything that's befuddling us. And you all know, pastors receive a lot of news and all kinds of stuff. And so do you. There's a lot of things that are concerning. But this is telling us, this is how we're to look at it. We're to look to this book to see how to answer these situations and to answer the closing scenes of verse history. And so I commend to you this book. And every part of it is important then to the waiting room. There are some churches who will teach the first, the seven churches are all we can understand. The rest of that we can't understand. There are some that teach, well, we need to focus on all these things down here, but they skip the seven churches. We need to go from really the beginning to the end. Now, I've touched the whole thing before, and I've touched on the beast and all of that. And I've tried to show how they're beastly and ugly, but yet look at Christ. Look at the comparison. And now we're going to look at the seven churches. Especially starting next week, we'll look at Ephesus. But every part, as we go through this, is important to us as we wait for our bridegroom to come. When they say, Behold the bridegroom cometh, go out to meet him, we say, Yes, Lord, I've waited for you. I've waited for you. That's what he's looking for. And so, we look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. Is this a greeting from John or somebody else? Look at it. You can look at it in your version. This is a modern King James version. You can uh, get to uh, King James or King James, whatever you but this is modern King James. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now we know there are more than seven churches in that area according to historical data. But so you're looking at he has either a particular assignment or he has these churches in mind. They're crucial. Or they're symbolic of something for the churches of all ages because there's seven churches. Perfect number. Whatever. But John did not intend this just to be going to those seven churches. It's clear because you get to Revelation 22, the spirit of the bride, the church says, Come. There's a call to everybody. So this message was meant to ripple down through time and be right here in front of us here today. And notice it begins with these words. Grace to you and peace. That's a typical ancient Near Eastern greeting. 
But look at what it continues. From him who is and who was and who is coming. Not from me, John, but from somebody else. And there's a couple who was and who is and who is coming. There's only really one that fits totally. It fits Jesus, and there's some characteristics of that that fit the Father, because they're one. But that's, that's all that we can really nail down. It's not John. It's from Jesus, who got it from the Father. And from the seven spirits, or the sevenfold spirits, which are before his throne, it's this idea of complete or perfect spirit. Even from Jesus Christ, the Greek actually has the word spirit, sevenfold spirit. Even from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, he's going to rule. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, if that's not grace, I don't know what it is. Grace, favor, kindness, undeserved. Kindness to us to say, look at yeah, he's guilty of death penalty over there. Yeah, his, his name is Son of the Father, but he doesn't look anything like the Son of the Father, does he? But I'm going to love and care for him, and he's going to go free, and I'm going to die in his place. That's happening to Barabbas. But that's what's supposed to happen to each one of us. Barabbas didn't deserve it. He was an insurrectionist. He was a revolutionary. He was inciting a religious situation. There were a bunch of thieves in the midst, too. A would-be Messiah goes free, and the true Messiah dies for him. In his own blood, that's kindness that he didn't deserve. We know from situations in the Gospels that Jesus chose this. He chose to go through those temptations in the wilderness. He chose to not have the kingdoms handed over to him if he would bow down. He, wanted to, he knew he needed to go to the cross to really secure our freedom. And that's what he did. So that's grace. But it made us kings and priests to God and His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Imagine knowing, without a shadow of doubt, throughout all eternity, that God trusts you. And not a king is, a ruler, someone who's able to lead people. God trusts you. It's a real hard thing when the trust is betrayed. Imagine, though, God saying, I trust you forever. It gives me a sense of, wow. And a sense of, I mean that much to you. And then a sense of calm and peace. It's interesting that usually when somebody writes a letter, at least Paul and them, they'll include some main elements in their opening statements, and you'll find those further down in the text. And that's why I marked it up there for you, so if you you haven't seen it, it could be argued that grace and peace are already showing up in the text. It's almost like a summary of what everything else will be about. Know that though there are beasts to watch out for, there's a Babylon that has fallen, but know there's a voice that says, come out of her, my people. That's Jesus' voice. That's his grace. That's his peaceful calling out to that person. I mean, these themes go throughout the whole rest of the book. And he says, Amen. That's really the beginning of this book. So it's a greeting from heaven, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And also you find the God in here, because you have grace and peace from Him, and then the sevenfold spirit. And then later on, you have this phrase, who is, who was, who is coming. Verse 6 uses it about some of those phrases about the Father. Verse 8 uses it about Jesus. I... <laughs> Specifically, it came from Jesus, so I bend towards that, that side. But I also recognize Jesus' message comes really from the Father. So this message is from the Father. 
He truly wants us to understand it. And the sevenfold spirit is there as well. So the whole Godhead is interested in this book. They, they, they basically come to John personally through, through Jesus, who's the instrument. And the focal point of which is grace and peace, their focal point is then found here in verse 5. It says in Revelation 1, verse 5, it talks about how it came from him and before his throne, even, even from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. This seems to be the focal point. That Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the one we have to look to. He's the one we have to keep following. It says in Revelation 14, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now, I don't see too many sheep following a little lamb around. My baby sheep, they, they follow the, 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 the older ones, right? The older sheep around. But this is talking about us as people, as his flock, following a lamb. Now, it could be, of course, since they've grown up uh, sheep and all of that. And we know flocks have, have under shepherds, if you will, a leading lamb or a leading sheep that will actually direct the flock to follow the shepherd. I have one. Some people don't trust rams. I actually trust my ram most of the time to do his job. And I do turn my back on him. And some say, don't do that. But this guy has earned my trust in a year. And I'm not going to completely trust him without the corner of my eye for another year or two. But he's the kind of ram that when I say go, my staff, he has them go. He's like, come on, y'all. He kicks his feet out and all that. And boom, stomps his front feet. And he, and he, I don't know what he says to him, but he gets him through the gate. Now, Jesus is like uh, an older brother when he's that language to us. I mean, he, he comes to us in a way that leads us along. And we can, we, a, a ram can do that. He can kind of help the shepherd. Now, we find Jesus is so much more than that. He's saying, if you really want to know the Father, if you this is, the Father is the true shepherd under this whole thing. The Son is the Son. They're co-equal. And so what you see in Jesus, you see in the Father. It's not like a lesser, like a human being and an animal. This is Jesus saying, I can come to you personally, like a, one of your own flock, and lead you personally. And so this is the focus that appears throughout the book of Revelation on Jesus, the faithful witness. So I've got some questions and comments that have come my way. Somebody said to me, why do we have to hear about the love of God? Why not hear about the present truth? My answer, because uh, some people mean by present truth, they mean I read a headline over here or a news thing that's happening in the church over here, and I criticize some things going on in the church, and I criticize what's going on in society, and that's the sermon. Yeah, that's not present truth. If you're eating that, it's feeding, somehow feeding you. It's more than likely feeding a fear. Because I don't, I don't look at the media and the things that are going on uh, to really get fed spiritually. Sometimes I want to look and be aware of what's going on. So 30 minutes a week or something, I'll, I'll flip through some stories. But if that's my diet, too much of a good thing kills a sheep. I mean, a sheep can go out... And you know, um, star thistle? You say, well, sheep can't eat star thistle. They can eat star thistle just fine. When it's young, at a tender age, they can eat that stuff down and you'll never have star thistle to appear in your field. At least my sheep do it. 
But if that sheep eats it at the wrong time, it's poisonous. And especially if they're used to eating a certain amount of it, and now all of a sudden they eat at the wrong time, they're bloating out. So there could be things that are good in a season or certain setting, but too much of it or at the wrong time, it can become petrifying and deadly, really. And so fear is that way. Fear is an emotion in and of itself. It's not necessarily negative. I mean, you find it leads down a negative path. You keep dwelling on it. But if you all of a sudden say, well, I better back off here. This thing's trying to, you know, this bee's coming at me or whatever. And you respond. Maybe you back up and you stay calm. That's not a negative thing, is it? That's this kind of a self-preservation thing. So by itself, it's not that. But if it's fearful and forceful and it's condemnation producing rather than fruits of the Spirit producing, it's not present truth. This Luke 21, 28, it's one I memorized as I was walking paper out years ago and I found my professor who helped me through that class. And I would memorize the scripture. Look up. Lift up your heads for the time of your redemption draweth nigh. And there I'd be going up this huge hill to deliver papers and I'd look out and I'd look up further and I'd say, Lord, I want to reach as many as I can before that happens. The Lord, when it happens, you know, everything that's going to go wrong in this world, I want to look up. Because your redemption is mine. All the bad in the world reminds me that Jesus is coming soon. That's why you look up to hear the shout. Otherwise, fear will take the good news and make it bad news. And that will be nothing that can be shareable. At least not in a good way. It becomes toxic. If somebody looks at the good news and basically twists it, and it begins to take somebody slowly but surely off a different track, then that's no longer good news. And some say, well, God does not have unconditional love, so why are you talking about it? There's no such thing as unconditional love. Well, you're going to see that he has an unending love. Imagine you, uh, I don't even want to presume upon it, but imagine you have a, and I'm using a parable to compare it to God because I don't want to put my mind in his shoes. But imagine you have a child that's wayward in your opinion. You don't see everything that's happening. But just what you see it looks like they're, they're going the wrong direction. They're making some decisions that are harmful to themselves and others. And you wish above anything that you could just intervene. You could just convince them. You could just knock some sense or whatever. And you just wish that they would change. And sometimes love turns to frustration at a certain point. But you still have that love deep down that you just long for the day. You know, you've heard the story of the son who was coming home and his dad said, I'll, I'll give you a sign. It'll be a, a sheet out there. You know, it'll be a white uh, sheet or some piece of sheet out there. And he comes, he won't even look out the window of the train or whatever. And he, but finally, somebody says, what you, what's your problem? And he says, well, can you tell me if there's anything white out there? And the whole house is covered with white sheets. Now here he was fearful and all of this, and yet his dad was preparing a welcome. It's, it's an internet story. I don't know if it's true. But think about that. That father longed for his son or his daughter, depends on the version of the story, to come home. That love is still there, even if the disapproving is there, even if the standard still didn't change, it's still there. And when the great white throne judgment happens in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, I believe that God is, in essence, one more time coming to his people. Look what I've done for you throughout your whole life. Still love you. And what do they do? They take up arms to kill this guy who's loved them all their lives. So 
My question is, what is present truth? What is a three angels message? And I have an answer here, in case you look into the red books. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted seed. The third angels message is talking about. The third angels message. The sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Y'all know the third angels message, right? Babylon has fallen, has fallen. It goes on and talks about penalty. It's, it's one of the most solemn messages in all of scripture. It's a call to say, come back to me. You're fallen. Sin. And this is going to people who live in darkness, who, who think that their religion and all of that is really of Christ, and it's not. And they're deceived. And he's coming to them and saying, you're fallen. And she says, that third angel's message is about the sacrifice of the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith. That's saying, I know of no other way to be saved other than look to Jesus and say, Lord, here I am. Take control. My life's a mess. I know what you did on the cross for me. It's wonderful. And, and meaningfully say this, it was for me. Justification through faith in the surety is the third angel's message. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ. We're standing, we're, I think the wild down, I'll just do a whole sermon on standing in the shaking. Because the only way the church goes through the shaking is, is Jesus. You know, it talks about in Hebrews, this whole idea of the fiery mountain and all of that. And really, the church of the firstborn looks to the, looks to the firstborn who established it. But that's another time. But to righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. That's why he says, my reward is with you. We can't get rid of that. That's, that's total falsehood to say, well, I believe in Jesus. That's all that matters. Yes, that's what really matters. But if you believe in Jesus, what's going to happen? The rest of the story. The life of Jesus will happen. You know I mean? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, we're then created for good works. We're recreated. And we do those things. And so when Jesus comes, he rewards us for the good. Because guess what? There's nothing left of it. Revelation says your sins are blotted out. If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, your sins are blotted out. That means only one thing is left. The Lamb's life. The Lamb's book of life. And so we do manifest obedience to all the commandments. Many had lost sight of Jesus, she speaks about. They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits, his changeless love for the human family, or unending love. He has changeless love. All power is given into his hands, that he may dispense rich gifts to men, imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness. That is the priceless gift, his own righteousness, not ours, to the helpless human agent. I guess you could get a gift and say, forget you. Who does that? Now, some people do take gifts that you give, like pearls to the swine, and you stomp them down, and you think, oh, I, I, I labored for that. I, I spent hours making that quilt. And, you know, you've got to, and, you know, and they, oh, look at this, and they throw it down. Or a gift that you worked hours to pay for, and then all of a sudden it's treated like trash. I mean, that's, that's terrible, isn't it? Especially, here we are, a helpless human agent. And we could be either an agent of God or an agent of Satan as a human. I want to be an agent of God. But how I become that is through Christ's righteousness. He puts this beautiful desire in my heart. And repentance itself is a gift. You look at Ephesians and Onward, it talks about the Holy Spirit comes and helps kindle this in our hearts to want to even turn our back. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. I have a command. It's to give this message. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his Holy Spirit and 
large measure. I would suggest that as we look at this vocation, we look at the Word of God, it's pretty clear. Without His righteousness, we don't have that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Without that outpouring of the Spirit, we don't really have that loud call message. We have a megaphone, but we have no message. That's not clear enough. This one is written April 1, 1890, also in the book of Evangelism. Several were written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message, and I have answered it is the third angel's message in verity in truth. So those who wish to present or hear something else, I choose to be one of the avid people of God. We choose to be one of the avid people of God who are here in this town, in this place, proclaiming this message. And if you start using methods that undermine this message, and you start using methods that hurt one another, then I will follow the words of Jesus with each one. And you all know Matthew 18. And so Babylon is fallen. I proclaim it. I say it. And the answer to everything that's fallen in this world is given clearly. Come out of her, my people. Jesus says that. Those are his words. So if we've turned to anyone else, pointed to anyone else, then my next question is, can we truly believe 1 John 4? Jesus is in the flesh. He is Lord. Or are we the Antichrist? That's harsh, isn't it? But that's the question I ask myself. I don't want myself or anybody to be put in place of Jesus. Any message other than the points of Jesus. So justification by faith will be our focus now in eternity, Ephesians chapter 1. And it's coupled with some beautiful words here. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and made us, by the way, it's an heiress, which means past tense. This is something that happened in the past that you look back to and you say, wow, look at that. It can soften. It can subdue. I remember this very week. I had a relationship that was kind of sour, and I, I thought, Lord, I just need to look back at it. I started looking back and seeing the wonderful memories in that relationship. And I can tell you right now, it softened me. It even enabled that other, person, other, other being in the relationship to be healed. Physically. I was hindering a healing of this other individual because somehow I held a grudge against them. But I had to look back to see it and see, look at these things. Something about looking back and seeing the beautiful life of Jesus, how he treated those around him, how he, he, he didn't respond to their accusations and all that. He just kind of went willingly like a sheep in the slaughter. His whole being death, burial, and resurrection, and his ascension and soon return. He made us kings and priests. What did he pay for? It was back then. It's a past tense by the time John is writing it. And what is he looking back to? John is looking back at his life from the island of Papos, and he's on an island that means my mortality, my killing. And so you imagine he's looking back and he gets his vision from the Lord on the Sabbath and he says to him who loved us, washed from our sins in his own blood, and made us, it's clearly linked, the conjunction links it back to the blood. If you don't like the homiletical analysis, then take the lexical analysis, which says it's linked right back to that very thing that's before it. He did that, and we look back by faith and say, you know what, I'm a child of royalty. I'm someone who can serve a minister for God and priest. And I'm also that from his father. I'm also, in the view of the father, that's who I am. But notice what we behold. 
Behold, or look, John says, he comes with the clouds, every eye will see him, those who pierced him will see him, and all the kindreds of the earth will wail. It's another and there that links it back to the previous. Those who pierced him and the kindreds of the earth, or the nations, and in Revelation, nations at war against the Lamb are fearful of judgment of the Lamb. He comes on a white horse, and basically that sword is for them coming out of his mouth. So they're fearful. They're really the harlot church. So if fear is enveloping my soul, and I don't experience the first part, then when I look down here, I don't want to behold. I run and hide and have the rocks, want to have the rocks follow me. So there's a contrast here in these very verses. Which group am I going to be in? One who beholds and says, wow, here he comes. Or the ones down there that are wailing. And so John says, even so, amen. Why? Because he wants to look to Jesus and be one of the first group. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come. That's exactly right. He was pointing that out. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. And so we find the waiting bride will be a holy bride. If you have time this afternoon, read Psalm 85. I remember my boys the other night. But it talks about this holiness that takes place before the Lord comes. And I don't have time to read the whole thing with you. But it's clear from the text. So mark it down. Check me out. It's available. This holiness is only available from the Lord. He's the source of it in Psalm 85. He's always been the source of it. But this is what lightens the world. Is his holiness. And it talks about in that text that truth and peace kiss. We have to have truth, that's understandable. There's, there are things, facts about God, and things that we have faith in that are true. I've stood for them for years, I will continue to stand for them. But that brings peace. And I only know of one place where that really mingles the best, and that's at the monument of mercy called the cross. Where the truth was, we're all wayward, we all violated the law. And the law is holy, just, and perfect. And the cross upholds them both. The truth of the justice of God and the mercy of God. Happen at the cross can happen again daily in our lives. That's what I pray for. That I will be crucified daily. And yet not I, but Christ will live through me. And so the waiting bride focuses on and experiences that grace and peace that John wrote about. As they look to, to this revealing of Jesus. As they look at the book and it points them upward. They serve and share. The waiting bride serves and shares because of these empowering attributes. The grace and the peace make you want to share. You shouldn't have to get up here and motivate me through fear or guilt to do anything. And I shouldn't either. Wasn't that a wonderful testimony of what God did at the mall? I mean, who would have thought? I mean, here we are trying to pray about, okay, Lord, open a door at the mall. And, 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 and we tried this, we tried that, and then all of a sudden, Holy Spirit moves upon a group, and they're over at the mall. Nothing to worry about. Nothing to guilt about. Nothing to say, well, let's find a new method. You know, and the pastor has to come up with a new method. The Holy Spirit is guiding the methods. He's given us a beautiful message. But he's guiding the method as well. And so we serve and we share because of those beautiful truths. And then the waiting bride becomes overcomers because of the indwelling spirit. That same spirit that John was in is the same spirit that is in us as we look to Jesus and become like and the waiting bride are not like the evil that they behold and see in the world. Because they're beholding. He's coming in the clouds. Amen. For there will be no tree of knowledge of good and evil in eternity. So why in the world don't we uproot it now? Quit, let's quit looking at it. Do you realize?
But we all know it comes to each one of us in different ways with temptations. Through, like I said before, generational sins and things that the devil wants to hold over us. And we can look to the good, if you want to have good and evil, and basically get rid of looking at the tree of knowledge of good and evil by looking at the one who is good, and that will go away. It's that sweet, subduing spirit of Christ that makes a person kind who is angry. It's that sweet, subduing spirit of Christ that makes somebody get him when they want to hold on. And so that's what uproots it. He can change us into a waiting bride that is looking for his appearing. I've invited John to replay this. This is our closing song for a while now. And John, let me know when you have it ready. But it says, and this is a family scene. So imagine a family of faith singing this song. You can get it on YouTube. It's called, I Will Change Your Name. But it says, I will change your name. You will no longer be called wounded, outcast, lowly, or afraid. Today I'm focusing on, let's get rid of any of the fear factor, if you will. As a waiting bride, we're expecting that looking. And I don't know about you, but that was a joyful day when I got married. Amen. You know, I, I can't say everything went perfectly, but it was a day of joy. There's some hiccups, and everybody has to hiccups. She didn't fall down that way. I still remember her dad far way out here in case, because he wanted to step on her dress and have her, you know. But it was a day of joy, wasn't it? And this is what we're talking about here. The waiting bride is not going to look fearfully. It's not going to be wounded, outcast, downcast. But confidence, joyfulness, overcoming one. One who has faithfulness, friend of God, and who seeks his face. We're going to play the song, and if uh, God allows you to place it in your life some way, please take time to do that.